Lord, what a joy to be with your people, to declare together your greatness. God, we are excited this morning to remember again how wonderful you are, how majestic you are, how holy you are. God, in our insufficiency, in our need, in our realization that we don't have what it takes, that we can't create life for ourselves. God, this morning, it is our great delight to look to you and know that you are the author. You are the giver of life. You are the one who meets us with hope. God, we worship you. We sing about you as this great, wonderful God. Yes, because we see your power, but also because we know that you sent your son to save us, that you sent him to live and to die and to rise for us. God, we pray this morning as we hear your word, as we hear good news, as we hear the reality of who you are, that, God, our hearts wouldn't be numb, that our hearts wouldn't be over-familiar with your truth, but that you would meet us, that you would strike us, that you would pierce deep into our hearts these realities, that truly, really, how great is our God wouldn't just be words we sing, but it would truly be the, be the reality of our hearts that you would be great, that you would be exalted, that you would be magnified in us. God, lead us now through your word, by the power of your spirit, to see your son Jesus, to bow down at his feet, and to seek all of our life, all of our satisfaction in him alone. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. As you're taking a seat, I want to invite you to open up your Bible to Psalm 97 where we're going to spend our time today. Psalm 97 that you've already heard read. Uh, The last time I was out of the country was in 2016. Uh, I took a trip with Kyle Stewart, who is our administrative director here at the church. Kyle and I uh, went exploring some in Central America. And, uh, you know, something interesting about Central America I learned is that Some of the countries in Central America actually use U.S. currency, but then there's other countries in Central America that don't. They use their own currency. And so at one particular place where we crossed the border on our bus, uh, we had the opportunity to go and exchange our money. Uh, You know, hop off the bus, and all of a sudden, a uh, large group of young men just sort of come rushing our way. You know, it's, it's a little overwhelming, but I have my money out, and uh, this one nice, smiling young man in particular just came right up to me. Um, I'm holding my, a couple 20s in my hand, and he's got some, uh, a wad of cash in his hand. You know, now, listen, he's holding more bills than I was holding. Uh, the numbers on his bills were higher numbers than the numbers on my 20s. And so I gladly handed this young man what I was holding. Uh, he handed me what he was holding. And it wasn't until I got back on the bus and told Kyle what I had handed him and what he had handed me in return that I realized this nice, young, smiling man had totally ripped me off. What I had given him in exchange for what he had given me was so much worth more than what I had gotten in return. Now, I'm not saying that he stole from me. I, I, I voluntarily gave him what was in my hand, and he gave me what was in his hand. But this is true. I was the loser in that exchange. Well, see, this is what so many of us do all the time with God. And this is what the Bible calls idolatry. Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 Uh, Give us a little succinct definition of idolatry when it says this. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In our foolishness, we exchange that which costs so much more for something that is so much less. In our foolishness, we make an exchange and put something else in God's place. And when we make that exchange, we are always the losers. Um, Idolatry happens 
When we fear something more than we fear God, when we prioritize something higher than we prioritize God, or when we delight in something more than we delight in God. Idolatry happens when we fear something more than we fear God, and we prioritize something higher than we prioritize God, or when we delight in something more than we delight in God. So it can be anything. It can be money. It can be possessions. It can be relationships. It can be family. It can be anything in our lives that we put in the place of God. But, and when we make that exchange, when we elevate that thing to the place that only God deserves, we're the ones who lose out. Uh, in his book, Sipping Salt Water, uh, Steve Hoppy tells the story of Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini uh, was a, an American war hero. In 1943, he went out on a mission and his plane crashed. He was the only person uh, who survived the crash. Now, on, on one sense, it's, it's awesome. He survived. It, it was amazing, right? But here is the difficult part. He was all by himself in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. For 47 days, Louis Zamperini floated and floated and floated all by himself in the middle of the Pacific. As Steve Hoppy tells the story, uh, he shares that there were lots of threats to Zamperini's life, but the greatest threat, the number one threat to his life while he was floating in the water was his own thirst. Now that seems odd, right? Uh, here's a man, he's thirsty, and he's floating in water. Water as far as he could see in every direction. But here's the problem. If Zamperini had begun to drink the salt water, it would have slowly but surely shriveled him to death. If he had begun to drink the salt water, it might have tasted good for a moment, but it would have eventually killed him. And the reason Hoppy opens up his book with this story is he is trying to communicate the devastating effects of idolatry. See, we drink salt water when we try to find satisfaction in those things that will actually only make us thirstier. We drink salt water when we put our hope in things that actually only end up shriveling up our souls. We drink salt water when we try to find life in things that only eventually kill us. And any idol that we've created is nothing but salt water. So this morning as we work through Psalm 97, this is what we're going to uh, see. This is the question that we're going to be trying to answer. How do we kill the idols that are killing us? How do we kill the idols that are killing us? And this is the clear answer that Psalm 97 is going to give us. The only way that we can kill the idols that are killing us is by turning to the one true living God who alone can satisfy our souls. By turning to the one true living God who alone can satisfy our souls. And so what are we going to do to kill these idols? Eight things this morning we're going to look at. The first is this. We need to hear the good news of God's kingdom. We need to hear the good news of God's kingdom. Verse 1 starts out saying this. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let many coastlands be glad. I want you to consider for a second about why it is that you're excited when a candidate that you vote for gets elected into a position of authority. And why it is that when the candidate that you did not vote for gets elected, you are not happy about it. Why is it that every single morning after an election, there's a group of people who wakes up excited, hopeful, elated, and there's another group of people who wake up desperate, frustrated, hopeless? Well, the reason why is because we look to these people in charge of us, we look to the people who are our leaders to shape our lives, to defend us, to help us, to represent us, and we might even say we look to them to bless us. And so then if somebody is put in charge who we don't have trust in, who we don't have hope in, then we can't expect that person to defend us. We can't expect that person to represent us. We can't expect that person to bless us. And that's why we are to experience verse 1 as good news. 
we're hearing that the Lord reigns, the one who's in charge, the one who is shaping our lives, the one who can defend us and help us and bless us is God himself. And it is good news that God alone is God. More specifically this morning, it is good news that Jesus Christ is God's king. And he is God's king who has authority over all the earth. That's why at the end of verse 1, it mentions the coastlands. The coastlands, whenever it talks about the coastlands in the Bible, it's just talking about the ends of the earth. And what we're learning here this morning is that God, this God we worship, he is not a tribal deity. There is not one particular people whom this God belongs to. Jesus Christ is the king of every corner of the universe. Jesus Christ is king over every people, tribe, nation, and language. And here's why that announcement that Jesus Christ is king is such good news. Because all of us, in one way or another, have attempted to take charge of our own lives. All of us, in one way or another, have tried to be the king of our own lives. And what happens is, because we weren't made to bear the weight of that responsibility, we get crushed. The stress, the anxiety, the pressure to make it all work and to make something of ourselves and to put ourselves in all the right positions, the pressure we feel to bring blessings into our life, it cripples us. It crushes us because we weren't designed to be in charge. We weren't designed to be the king. And so this announcement that the Lord reigns is an announcement of good news. Guys, what if our busyness problem is actually an idolatry problem? What if our stress and anxiety problem is actually an idolatry problem? What if it's not that we just have too much responsibility, but maybe we've just trusted in the wrong person to lead our lives? And most especially, we've trusted in the wrong person who is ourselves. So why not submit to the good, kingly leadership of Jesus? Why not submit to him and find rest as he defends us, as he helps us, as he represents us, and as he blesses us? We find rest in him. So if we're going to kill our idols, then we need to hear the good news of God's kingdom. Second this morning, we need to see God in his glory. We need to see God in his glory. One of the reasons that we end up making the false exchange is because we don't actually know how much God is worth. Right? When I handed that money over to that boy, it's because I didn't know what I was holding, and I didn't understand what he was holding. And so one of the reasons that we do that with God is that we just aren't convinced that he's worth that much more. And that's why verses 2 through 6 are precisely the vision that we need. They begin this way. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up all his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. This is a vision of a God who does everything right all the time. This is a vision of a God who has no rivals, who cannot be stopped. This is a vision of a God who will ultimately defeat all of his enemies. This is a vision of a God who has strewn his majesty and wonder all throughout the universe. So that when we see these wonders of the world, when we see the stars, when we see the galaxies, and then we think, what must the God be like who made all this? This is a God who reveals himself in glory. Now, as we saw earlier, idolatry happens when we fear something instead of fearing God, we prioritize something instead of prioritizing God, or we delight in something instead of delighting in God. What Psalm 97 is doing is it's peeling back the veil for us so that we can see that any of those things that we would be tempted to trust in, to worship, to delight in instead of God, God is actually the one who made those things. 
God is actually the one who controls those things. And ultimately, especially if it's something that we fear, God will in the end defeat those things. Psalm 97 is trying to show us that only God truly carries his own worth and weight. When I was uh, 16, when I turned 16, my mom orchestrated a surprise uh, birthday party for me. Um, I had been out all day, and I came home, and I didn't know this, but my mom had invited a whole slew of my friends to come and hide in my bedroom. Uh, they had all parked like down the street or whatever. And so I just come running up the stairs, open the door, and to, to my total shock, the whole room of people yells, surprise! And I literally fell down. It was like in that moment, faced with the reality of how many people were yelling at me and I wasn't expecting it, I forgot how to stand up, and I just collapsed. Um, I would be, I, I like to think that if someone broke into my house, you know, I'd be like all tough about it, but now I have no idea. <clears throat> when I hear this psalm say that the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, the picture I have is that all of us, you know, think we're strong, all of us think we can hold our own, but then if we were to actually experience His glory, if we were to come into contact with who He really is, Everything else would pass away. We would forget how to stand. And actually, that's exactly what we need. That if our idols are going to pass away, if the things that we've sought life in, if the things that we think are so important, if those things are going to fall to the side, we've got to behold God in his glory. It reminds me of uh, one of the passages that we studied in Mark last year. Uh, we went through the whole uh, gospel of Mark. And in Mark chapter 5, Jesus raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. I love this story for a number of reasons. I just want to read two verses towards the end of Mark chapter 5 that I think illustrate uh, this point so well of why we need to see God in his glory. Uh, verse 42 starts this way. It says, And immediately the girl got up and began walking. So Jesus raised her from the dead. She gets up, starts walking around. And then it says, For she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. It's talking about her parents and the few disciples that were there. It says they were immediately overcome with amazement. Verse 43, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And, and here's the key, he told them to give her something to eat. See, in one moment, all these parents could think about was their daughter. All they cared about was her safety, her life. But when Jesus showed up and raised her from the dead... They totally forgot about her, and all they could think about was him. Jesus is like, hey, guys, she's alive now. You need to give her a snack. You need to feed her, right? Their whole attention had shifted onto Jesus, and that's exactly what needs to happen to us, that when we see Jesus in his glory, like what happened to the parents here where it says they were overcome with amazement, that's what needs to happen to us if our idols are to slip into the background. So how do we see God in his glory? How do we see him in his glory? Well, you know, occasionally, maybe God will in his sovereignty and the fact that he reigns, maybe he will show up in a powerful way in our life to the, to the point where he peels back the veil and he shows us his presence. But that's rare. Uh, we do see that in the Bible, but we can't expect God to do that. The ways, the, the ways that we most normally see God in his glory is one by this. One is by looking at, out at the creation that he has made and thinking to ourselves, if this great God has made all this, we go down to the ocean, we look at the ocean, we go to the mountains, we look at this, we look up at the stars, and we think, if this God made this, and he holds it in the palm of his hand, then how much more weightier and worthy is he? But the main way, the main way that we see God in his glory is in his word. See, guys, when we're reading the Bible we're not really reading mainly to accumulate facts. Uh, we're not even reading the Bible mainly to figure out what steps do I need to take. The main thing we're doing when we read the Word is we're seeing who God is. And what we see when we see who God is is we see a far-surpassing, glorious object of our worship. 
When we wake up in the morning and we open our Bible, the prayer is, Lord, show me your glory. Show me the wonder of who you are. Because if I see your glory, then all these other things that are crowding in will pass into the background. For a moment, God, as you show me your glory in your word, I just want to forget how to stand up. I want to forget how to worry. I want to forget how to fret about all the other things in my life. And, and when I see you and am overcome with amazement, then I'll be set free from the idols that are killing me. So if we're going to kill our idols, we must see God in his glory. Third this morning, we need to learn how stupid idolatry is. We need to learn how stupid idolatry is. Now, the beginning of verse 7 says this. says, all worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Um, here, here's what you and I need to understand about the stupidity of our idolatry. When verse 7 alerts us to the fact that these idols are just images, it's teaching us that all the things that you and I have shifted, have exchanged for God, are actually things that we have made with our own hands. They're things that we can manipulate with our own hands. They are gods that we have fabricated, counterfeits that we have created with our own hands. So, for example, if we were to um, idolize or worship possessions, right? Possessions are literally things that somebody in the world has made with their hands, right? Our houses, our cars, the stuff that we accumulate. It's stuff that we have made, and yet so many of us worship our possessions. Or you think about success, right? Success is something that we do. It's something that we accomplish. So when we worship success, whether it's in our job or maybe it's in school, or we worship some hobby that we have you know, mastered or something like that, when we worship success, we are literally worshiping something that we ourselves have done. Or maybe it's people that we worship. Maybe we worship our kids. Or maybe we worship our parents. Or maybe it's just somebody's uh, approval of our lives that we kind of live and die based on. Or maybe it's just, you know, somebody that we idolize, you know, somebody that we look up to that we just try to mimic our life after. You know, when we worship another person, we are literally worshiping something that has come out of another human being. And so this alone should show us that our idolatry is stupid. Because we are worshiping things that we have made with our own hands. Another reason idolatry is so stupid is because when we make this exchange, we end up exchanging the gifts that God has given for God himself. The good things that God has given, like money or like success or like family or whatever it is, those good things that God has given are actually intended to only point us up to see how great God is. And so it's stupid for us to worship those things because what we're saying is that we actually think that the gift God has given us could somehow be worth more or could delight us more than the one who has given it to us in the first place. And then, I think this is by far the main reason that idolatry is stupid, probably the one that this passage gets at most clearly. The only certain thing about our idols is that they will always fail us. When we put our hope, when we put our trust, when we seek to find our delight in anything that is not God, there is a 100% fail rate. False gods that we worship, as it says here in verse 7, they are worthless. They have no value. They have no power. They cannot help us. They cannot save us. And they cannot bless us. At least not according to the way God has made us. It's like salt water. It might taste good for a moment. But all the while, it's just killing us. And so we like to say, look, you know, I've accumulated all this success. 
<laughs> or, look, look, I've built up all this security in my life. Or, look, I've accumulated all this money. Or, look, I, look at how many people love me or think I'm a great person. But all of it, all that we accumulate from our idols is worthless. It's empty. It leaves us broken. I want you to think for a moment that somebody came up to me after the service and said, Hey, uh, I've got a suitcase in my car. It's got a million dollars in it. And I would like to donate this to the church. Now, uh, I'm skeptical, but interested. So walk out to the car, uh, opens up the suitcase. Sure enough, million dollars. Here's the only problem. It's Monopoly dollars. Monopoly dollars, they're not worth anything. In fact, if you give me a million Monopoly dollars, I honestly would be annoyed. Right? There's a semblance of reality in it. It's dollars. It's not worth anything. And this psalm is trying to teach us that whatever we accumulate through our idols, whatever success, whatever money, whatever security, whatever life we think we have accumulated, it's actually just empty. It will leave us disappointed in the end. And how many millions of us will accumulate so much only, like it says in, in the verse here, to end in shame, to be disappointed. So if we're going to kill our idols, we need to learn how stupid idolatry is. Fourth this morning, we need to put our idols in their rightful place. We need to put our idols in their rightful place. Uh, we're going to key in now on the end of verse 7, but I want to read the whole thing. You know, maybe at this point you're sitting there thinking, okay, wait a second. I live in this world. <laughs> I have clothes. I have food. I have a family. I have a job. I mean, how can I possibly not be an idolater <laughs> if I've got all this stuff around me that can be turned into an idol? Well, I think that's the insight that verse, the end of verse 7 gives us. So let's read the whole thing. It says, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boasts in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. See, this is the great insight of this psalm. Uh, the way that we kill our idols actually isn't by going and holding ourselves up in a cave somewhere. It's not by totally cutting ourselves off from life. It's not by going around totally cutting off everything we possibly can that could possibly be turned into an idol. No. The way we kill our idols is by putting them in their rightful place, by looking at all the things in our life that we would be tempted to worship and saying, no, 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 you, worship him, all you gods. You idol in my life. No, you exist to glorify God. Money, you exist to glorify God. Pleasure, you exist to glorify God. Possessions, you exist to glorify God. Whatever it is, it exists to glorify God. See, some of these things that we, most of the things that we, make turn into idols, they're actually good things. But good things are only good things when they are used for their correct purpose, when they are put in their rightful place, when things are taken out of their rightful place. They get crushed, and we get hurt. Let me try to illustrate that. There was a young lady uh, who was a member of our church for about a year. Uh, she didn't live here very long. But she lived here long enough that she plugged in and when she moved away, uh, sadly, she experienced a really tragic accident. Um, she was moving some things around in her packing truck, in her box truck. And to reach a certain point where she needed to reach to move something, she put her foot on a bookshelf. And she, when she placed the weight on the bookshelf, the bookshelf collapsed and a screw went in the side of her leg and ripped all the way down the side of her leg. Um, I talked to her this week. It's been about a year or so, maybe a little longer. She's still recovering from this awful injury. And here's the thing. Bookshelves were never intended to carry the weight of a human. So the bookshelf collapsed, and she got hurt really bad. And that's exactly what happens when we put our trust in idols. 
when we worship something that was never meant to be an object of worship, when we trust in something that was never meant to be able to save us, when we seek our life in things that cannot give us life, those things get crushed and we get hurt. If I worship my kids, they will get crushed and I will get hurt. If I worship ministry, ministry will get crushed and I will be disappointed. So these things that we turn into idols, so many of them are good things, but they're only good things when they are used in their rightful place. And when we take them out of their rightful place, they get ruined and we get hurt. How do we do this? You say, okay, sounds good. I get it. How do we get to the place where we could actually put that idol in its rightful place? And at least to our next point this morning. Fifth, we need to compare false gods with the one true God. We need to compare false gods with the one true God. This is exactly where verses 8 and 9 go. It says, Sion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. If we're going to put our idols in their rightful place, if we're going to see them as the reason they exist is to worship him, then we actually have to believe that he is exalted over all the earth, that he is worth more than whatever that thing is that we're tempted to worship. Uh, there was a few years at the beginning of our marriage when Allie and I uh, were making a lot of big decisions. It just felt like those first few years, for some reason, there was just a lot, of, a lot of big decisions we were constantly making. Somehow, I don't know how this happens, but in like four years, we moved like seven times. I don't know how you do that. I don't, this is not even, doesn't even sound real. You know, we moved a lot. We both started and went through different job changes and stuff like that. Um, I went back to school. At some point, we decided to move back here. You know, it was just a lot, a lot of decisions to make. And so we found that it was kind of hard sometimes to be objective about the process. And so we would literally write out like a list, you know, we write out, hey, what are the positive things that would come out of this decision? And then being honest, you know, what are the negatives that would come out of this decision? And we try to really line it up, you know, make a comparison. Hey, what will this actually cost us if we make this decision or, or, or what have you? Well, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 does this same kind of compar comparative analysis. The Apostle Paul weighs out his life. He weighs out all his idols. He weighs out all his accomplishments. He weighs out all the things that could be something that he could trust in, hope in, find his delight in. And then he puts Jesus on the other side. And this is what Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. I mean, how can you do that? How could you look at the whole universe? How could you look at everything that exists, put it in one bucket, and say, you know what? Loss. I don't need it. I can live without it. How is that possible? He says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see what Paul's doing? He's counting the cost. He's making the comparison. He's adding it all up. He puts the whole world in, on one side. He puts Jesus on the other. And he knows that Jesus is worth more than it all. Jesus is exalted above all the gods. Both as an object of worship, as an object of trust, and as an object of delight. Jesus is worth more. And so are we tempted to choose our job over Jesus? Are we tempted to choose our family over Jesus? Are we tempted to choose school over Jesus or possessions or accomplishments or fill in the blank? We need to do the comparison. Honestly, ask ourselves, which is worth more? And when we have gotten to the place where we see that Jesus is worth more, that he's exalted, then we're ready to put our idols in the rightful place. 
then we can enjoy those things that God has given us without turning them into idols. We can look to the things that are good and use them for his purposes rather than turning them into false gods. And here's what that might look like. Uh, One way that that might look is we seek our contentment in Jesus whether we have those things or lose those things. So if my heart is invested in him, if all of my life is in him, then I can have them and they don't turn into ultimate things and I can lose them and I'm not totally crushed, not totally disappointed because I've got everything I need right here in Jesus. Another way that might look is just like honestly by genuinely giving thanks to God for the good things that he's given us. By genuinely thanking him and praising him for the things in our life that we know, that we know, that we know are gifts from him anyways. And then once we've sought our contentment in him, right, once we've sought our contentment and we can live with him or without him and we've given God thanks for him, then we're ready at that point to offer them up in his service. Lord, do you want my time? You can have it. Do you want my resources? You can have them. Do you want my whole life? You can have it. Why? Because I've got everything I need in Jesus. If we're going to kill our idols, we've got to come to the point where we see Jesus is worth more, he's exalted, and then we begin to place everything underneath him so that now everything in my life is for him. Everything's about him. Everything's pointing to his glory. And, and that, guys, that's when the things in my life are in their rightful place. That's when it works. Anything else will crush it and we'll be disappointed. Sixth, we need to align our hearts to God's heart. We need to align our hearts to God's heart. Uh, verse 10, we're just going to look at the beginning of verse 10. Verse 10 begins this way. It says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Here's the question, guys. Why does evil exist in the world? Why does evil exist in the world? Evil exists in the world because of idolatry. The porn industry exists because of idolatry. Human trafficking exists because of idolatry. Prejudice exists because of idolatry. Abortion exists because of idolatry. It's not like we wake up one day and just think, I'm just going to do some bad stuff today. No, the reason evil exists in the world is because we love the wrong gods. And when our hearts are so committed to those false gods, then we end up doing heinous things to protect those gods and to serve those gods and to worship those gods. But it's not just the heinous evil things that God points to as evil. God's definition of evil is so much more God-centered than our definition of evil. And that's why Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah chapter 2, 12 and 13. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. Now, I don't know what you would expect them to say here. Right? Maybe some atrocity. Maybe some terrible thing. Maybe they're murdering people. Or something, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is saying that idolatry is not only stupid, but it is evil. When we make the exchange and put something else in God's place, it is an affront to God. 
It is rebellion against God. And so when we deal with hating evil, like the verse says here, it's telling us what to do. It's saying, hey, you who hate evil, who you love the Lord, hate evil. How do we do that well? Well, the first place we have to start is we have to start in ourselves. We have to come to hate our own sin. We have to come to hate the ways that we have exchanged the glory of God for something else. We have to come to hate our idols. And then from that place of a pure heart, after we have dealt with our own sin, after we have hated the ways that we turn away from God, then we are ready to begin to hate the evil that we see around us in the world. How do we learn to hate evil? How do we get there? How do you get to the point where you hate what is opposed to God? Well, I think that's the reason this psalm puts it this way. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. It's because the way we learn to hate evil is by falling more and more in love with God. Um, when I met Allie, who's now my wife, uh, she was a, a Phillies fan. Uh, when we uh, were dating, we actually went to a Braves-Phillies baseball game, and she wore a Phillies shirt. But now over the years, um, her love for me has triumphed, and our household is now Braves all the way through and through. Now, I'm sure if you were to talk to her, uh, there's other ways in which my love for her has caused me to move towards enjoying and liking and being for things that she's for as well. I have been to see the Nutcracker, okay? So our love for each other has pulled us in, you know, towards one another. Here's the difference between Allie and I's relationship and then our relationship to God. In our relationship to God, God doesn't ever have to change to come compromise towards us. We are the ones that as we love him more and more and more and more, we begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates. To love what he loves and to hate what's in us that is opposed to him. The more we love God, the more we'll hate that we have things in us that are opposed to him. And then as we move out, we'll begin to not enjoy anymore the things that God doesn't enjoy. We've seen this morning um, how when we see God's glory, things pass away. But there's a sense in which just seeing his glory, that can make us tremble, that can make us fall, that can make us feel our smallness. But what is it that makes us love him? How do we become a person who loves the Lord? And so seventh this morning, we need to marvel at God's goodness and grace. We need to marvel at God's goodness and grace. The end of verse 10 and into 11 say this. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. So we saw earlier this vision in verses 2 through 6 of God. It's a grand vision. It's a vision of his power. It's a vision of his terror. It's a vision of his justice. And we see that, and that is a glorious God. But what Psalm 97 is also revealing to us is that God is not only glorious in his power, but he's also glorious in his grace. As Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, that it is the kindness of God that is meant to lead you to repentance. It is the kindness of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God that really melts the hard heart, that takes us from being idolaters to becoming lovers of God. And here is where we see the good news for idolaters. See, all these idols that we've made up, all the false gods that we have in our lives, we actually have to keep them alive. 
But the one true God, he keeps us alive. All the false gods, all the idols that we make, we have to work and work and work and work to keep them happy. But the one true God, he fills us with his overflowing joy. All the false gods, all the idols that we have in our life, money, possessions, people, relationships, whatever it is, we have to sacrifice over and over and over and over for, only to never get what we were promised in return. But here, the one true God, wonder upon wonder, he sacrifices for us. See, all of us have been idolaters. All of us have turned away from God. All of us have exchanged the glory of God for that which is not worth the exchange. And so we should all experience God only according to verses 2 through 6. We should experience God according to his terror, according to his justice. We should have the fire that comes out and consumes his adversaries. That should consume us if it weren't for one thing, that Jesus God's king, the one who has all authority, is a servant king. Jesus, God's son, came down and he took on flesh and the fires of God's wrath consumed him. The reason that God, as it says in this verse, the reason that God can preserve the lives of his saints is because he took the life of his son. The reason that we can be delivered from the hand of the wicked it's because God offered up his son into the hands of wicked men. And what we deserved was placed upon Jesus. The idolatry that we had committed, which had earned for us only the justice of God, God carried out that justice in his son. And that, guys, that is what melts our hearts to love him. Yes, we need to see his glory. We need to see the power of God. But it is when we see the glory of his grace that we're melted. And I love how this verse puts it. It's not just that Jesus did something for us in the past. It's not just that God somehow did something in the past and we just have to sort of look at it and, and feel differently about it. Verse 11 says, light is sown for the righteous. That's kind of a weird phrase, but it's mixing two metaphors. One is the seed, right? The seed that's sown that's then planted into something. But God is telling us that not only did Jesus do something for us in the past, but in the, in the moment, he puts light inside of us so that the lights come on and we can actually love God for the first time. That before we became a Christian, before you become a Christian, you are on your own. You are having to navigate life all by yourself. The gods that you have put your trust in aren't real. But when you cry out to Jesus, when you turn to him, when you turn to the one true living God and place your faith in Jesus, he implants his own spirit in you. And now you have life. Now you can love God. <laughs> For the first time ever, your heart awakens. And the God who was boring, the God who you didn't understand, the God who maybe even terrified you is now the love of your life. And so if you're here this morning and you know, as we've been talking, that you've only ever lived the life of idolatry, you've only ever put your trust in those things which are not God, you've only ever looked for things to satisfy you that are not God himself, I want to invite you to put your trust in Jesus. He's the one who both died for you so that you could be saved, but he's also the one who will put his spirit in you and turn on the lights so that you can now see God and know God and love God. I invite you this morning, please, please turn to the only one who can save you. Finally this morning, and this is in conclusion, we're going to kill our idols. See, I hope you've been seeing this all the way through. What is it really? What is it really that kills the idol? What is it really that gets down to the root, you know? You know, if I'm addicted to something, or if I know that I'm infatuated with the wrong thing, or if I have a heart that puts too much into my kids or too much into my work. How do I really get to that? And that's where we land this morning, finally, eighth. We seek our fulfillment in God alone. We seek our fulfillment in God alone. Verse 12 ends this awesome psalm this way, saying, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. 
See, how do we keep from finding satisfaction in those things that only make us thirstier? How do we seek from trying to find life in the things that only end up killing us? We will stop running to our idols when we have found our joy in God. When we have found our delight in Him. When He is the fresh water filling our souls. We no longer need salt water anymore. We're no longer tempted to go after the things that that kill us. See, one day, guys, idolatry is going to pass away. Uh, there'll be a moment when idolatry does not exist anymore. When that day comes, the reason that idolatry won't exist is because we'll be so full of the real thing that we won't need the counterfeit anymore. We'll be so in awe of what Jesus has done for us to save us, and we'll be so consumed with the life of God and the overflowing joy of God, that to go and try to seek it in counterfeits will be no more. And my goal in life really is to try now, is to seek that as much as I possibly can now in God. And my goal as a pastor is to fight for your joy in God, to fight that you would have God as your greatest delight, that you wouldn't be sipping salt water anymore, that you wouldn't be making that old same exchange anymore because you have found life and you found it in the only one who can give it. Man, how I pray we would enjoy God for all that it means to enjoy Him because when we're enjoying God to our fullest capacity, then, then we're worshiping Him for all that He is worth. Let's pray. God, there's not one of us here this morning that isn't an idolater. There's not one of us here who doesn't know what it means to give the weight in our lives to the wrong things, to give priority to the wrong things, to fear the wrong things, to delight in the wrong things. And so, Lord, this morning, we pray that you would rescue us, sow light into our hearts, Show us the beauty of your son, Jesus, that we might be overcome with amazement, moved outside of ourselves, so that as we believe in Jesus, as we look to Jesus, as we delight in him, God, that we would find our satisfaction in you. Lord, help us, help us not to elevate the gifts you've given us above you. Lord, help us to see those gifts as opportunities to worship you, to glorify you, to bring service to your name. God, we're desperate to know you, to taste you, to enjoy you. So we pray you flood our hearts now with your love and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.